Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation's movie podcast. My name is Titus. I will be hosting this series. You can check out my movie essays on The Federalist or check me out on Facebook at Titus on Film or just Google Titus on Film for my website. Today I am joined by my old friend Felix. We're doing our introductory podcast on Ridley Scott's Alien, the original movie from 1979. There's a new movie out in theaters, Alien Covenant, also directed by Ridley Scott, the centerpiece in his new Alien trilogy, to prepare the ground for the original story. It's an entirely prequel trilogy, we're getting used to that these days. Also the setup for Ridley Scott's legacy. I know you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, it's the most interesting thing that I could think of... uh... I've already seen Covenant a couple of times, and it occurred to me that this is the only person I've heard of who's taken back their franchise. The only other example I could think of was George Lucas, but he lost that one to Disney. Yeah, Star Wars is popular again, but no thanks to George Lucas. He sold out, and he's a thing of the past. Here you have another guy who has successfully managed to go back to his studio, back to the success that made him famous in the first place. So yeah, he's getting away with it scot-free, as the name of his company goes. I've heard him say, if people keep uh, asking for these movies, he's got at least six more aliens in him. It looks like a bright future for for the horror genre. We're going to do a podcast on the Covenant movie in the near future. Yes, we're publishing that next weekend. Give people a chance to see the movie, just in case we're going to spoil any of the plot details. Yeah, that's great. He'll turn 80 this year, so we can do an anniversary edition for a discussion on his legacy, his entire filmography. So you can expect the Ridley Scott anniversary edition of the movie podcast this autumn. Meanwhile, let's talk about the original Alien. This is the movie that made Ridley Scott's career. It was only his second feature film, and it prepared him for his third. In 1982, he directed Blade Runner. It seems like at the end of his career he's trying to put a legacy together by putting these two universes together. The protagonist of his alien franchise, the monster, the xenomorph, and the protagonist of his Blade Runner franchise, the android robots, are coming together in his new trilogy. There are a lot of similarities between the two synthetics in Blade Runner and the one in Alien. Yes, we do have a love of these European faces with their stern angles, faces devoid of passion. They just seem more serious and somehow less human, not at all friendly. Michael Fassbender in the new Alien trilogy and Rutger Hauer in the old Blade Runner movies really are memorable characters in a scary sort of way. You can see why these replicants, these androids, these synthetic human beings are advertised as more human than human. Well, it's not just that. I mean, they also recite poetry well, right? Oh yeah, they do have all the idealism and all the pretension. They're they're very romantic in that sort of way. Yeah, and doesn't uh, Blade Runner's uh, new protagonist, Ryan Gosling, have the most dolorous face that you've seen in a very long time? Yeah, he's our newest Don Quixote, the Knight of the Sad Countenance. I don't know, I have a lot of faith he'll do fine. The new movie is coming out, the new Blade Runner as well. It's directed by Denis Villeneuve, produced by Ridley Scott. I think there's a kind of meeting of tastes in their uh, cinematic craftsmanship. I have hopes for that too. Blade Runner 2049 is coming out in October and we'll do a podcast then. And we'll be talking about the Blade Runner franchise as a whole and how it fits with the Alien franchise as well. For now, let's talk about the Alien trilogy. I think we're in the middle of it. In 2012, Ridley Scott made Prometheus, 
which I think is the beginning of this trilogy that begins to center on the android David. Now, with Alien Covenant, he's retrieving the original alien. There are lots of scenes and uh, setups that connect the Alien Covenant in 2017 to 1979's Alien Original. And he's really scorching the earth behind him on the previous installments in the series that aren't his. Everything between 1979 and 2012 is memory hold. It's, it's a thing of the past or not even that. It's disowned. Instead, we get to go back to the three big mysteries and three big questions of the 1979 alien. We have a return to the mystery of the engineer race and what kind of encounter is possible between us and them. In Prometheus, we were told that the engineers are long sought after creators and in a future discussion on Covenant, we'll see how much of that really is true. Second of all, the burning question of the true origin of the ferocious xenomorph is answered by Covenant. But it's important to remember that the more answers we get now, we'll still only suffer the fate of the first Alien story, since all the new movies are leading up to 1979, actually. Finally, in the new movie, Ridley Scott is also returning to his evil android. And like in the original Alien, he forces us to question whether we can trust in robots and the science that made them. So Ridley Scott's going back to the future, actually. And so should we. Let's get to talking about 1979's Alien. Alien is the biggest sci-fi horror movie yet made. The science fiction component of the movie centers in the question of the giant ancient alien race. A spaceship is diverted from its return to Earth after a mining expedition. It runs into this alien race, seemingly extinct, but with living signs of great power. An enormous ship, an enormous dead alien, lots of unanswered questions. The horror aspect of the movie comes as a replacement of the exploration of the mystery of the ancient alien race. Instead, we get a monster. Even in the future of space exploration, this is a horrifying creature. Nobody is ready for it. Alien is both an adjective and a noun in English. The plot of the movie Alien moves from the adjective to the noun. First we see something that is alien to us, and only later do we experience the being itself, which induces horror. It is a form of life utterly devoid of mind. It is pure will to live. Our protagonists, the crew of the mining ship Nostromo, have to deal with something unlike anything they have ever experienced, and in the trial they fare poorly. If the movie is a kind of judgment on the future we're heading toward, it is not flattering. But before we get to the fight against the xenomorph alien, let's discuss how the crew encounters it. Where do they find it? What is the big surprise? What surprised me was the beginning. When I was a kid I first saw the second Aliens movie, the Cameron movie. The startup to that actually is really simple, there's no, there's no great mystery. Ripley has escaped a previous uh, catastrophe, she's returned to Earth, now people want to get her back into the fray and uh, figure out how to unravel the mystery or destroy the aliens. They seem to be going hand in hand and it's an action story. It's really adventurous, but that's not how the first one starts and I saw the first one a couple of years after I saw the second one and it occurs to me the way you're introduced to the xenomorphs, both audience and the, the crew of the Nostromo are introduced to them like uh, children, they're full of wonder. You don't know what is going to happen, but you have an expectation that it's nothing bad. They enter a foreign ship, an alien ship, that looks uh, like the interior of a thorax, 
bones and ribs and nothing else and there's just one pilot. Yes, this is a radical encounter and they're utterly unprepared for it. This is somehow going beyond human experience, so it makes sense that they're so ignorant and in a certain sense innocent. The crew of the Nostromo, our protagonists, these are experienced space travelers. You see them in the opening sequences going about their routine jobs with the bored efficiency of the lifer. They take for granted how their ship runs, how they are part of its work and that they're going home. Instead of all that, they gradually awaken to this radical encounter. The beginnings of the first two Alien movies are really strikingly different. Ridley Scott's movie introduces the aliens through a mystery, while Cameron's does it through a well-paced call to action. Cameron's aliens tells you about Ripley, who's the only survivor of a catastrophic encounter, and she'll go out again to fight the alien scum. I love that. That was a kid. The beginning of the first movie to this day leaves me with a great sense of wonder. Like Kane, the second-in-command, I was possessed by curiosity to see more of the dead spaceship and pilot. When Kane goes down to the chamber where the xenomorph eggs are stored, I rather wanted to stop and understand more of what I had already seen. First figure out what they are. I think because you see the dead pilot who looks not a little like a kind of human being, you begin to wonder how much they're actually like us. That question never left me. As a kid I wanted to know if they had been better or not than humans. Of course, Scott won't allow an investigation of the engineer race for another 33 years, but I'm not sure that matters. What you do find out is that the humans of the Nostromo are at least in one way like the engineers. They didn't survive the Xenomorph, neither did any of their ships. All this begins with an order and with some curiosity. Our latter-day space cowboy, Captain Dallas, gets his order to explore the alien ship, the source of the distress signal. But his second-in-command, the executive officer, Kane, he's actually curious. He's always going ahead of them and he's the explorer of the party. So what is it that he sees? At a distance, the alien ship looks like a giant crescent, but up close, each section of it looks like the ribbing and joints of a metal skeleton. It does not obey any scientific laws. It's not made to break out of a gravity well and minimize friction with fluids. It's not shaped like a bullet. It's not made to maximize useful space for interplanetary travel. It's not some kind of series of spheres. It has no obvious propulsion system at that. It's not clear why it landed on the planetoid where our crew finds it. It's the spectacle of intelligence unintelligible. We suspect it has enormous powers from its size as much as from its implausible discovery on an abandoned planetoid. But we cannot find out anything about it. The only thing the exploring crew does notice is that the engineer was killed by something that burst through his chest from within. It is possible the being they're looking at contains the cause of its own destruction. There's one man and there's one ship. The man has a hole in his chest and the ship has a hole in its main flight deck. This is a show of violence, both in the corpse and in the ship. But the exploring crew of the Nostromo does not make anything of this. That's our introduction both to the alien engineers and their majestic ship and to the monster, the xenomorph, the perfect killer. On this ship we encounter the utter separation of mind and life. The artifact itself, the ship, is a sign of creative intelligence and scientific power. So too is it the distress signal it was broadcasting into the vast emptiness of space. Maybe the reason the crew of the Nostromo is so clueless, even in face of evidence of violence or damage, 
is that they expect life to be tied up to intelligence and intelligence is so obviously absent in this case. Maybe that's why they're not prepared to discover a form of life that is utterly unintelligent. This is how we learn about the terrifying danger in the title of the movie, The Alien. Now that we have seen the ship and the secret it contains, we have to go back and look at the human ship, Nostromo, and the human crew, and to try to understand how it compares with the alien ship and the alien crew. What is the relationship between life and mind in our own case as human beings? So in the beginning of the movie, Ridley Scott makes every effort to convince us that this spaceship and this space crew are all perfectly normal. They go about their job, everything you see on screen, however complex as machinery and artificial intelligence, is all functional. Everybody goes on about their job, their banter, their eating, as if everything is normal. But at the end of the first act, you see their encounter with the alien. Now you can compare that ship, so strange and powerful, to this other ship, so drab and ordinary seeming. Our human-made ship and this human crew are not as strange as the alien, but they are still strange. We can look at it again and try to see where are we, what are we seeing, what's happening on the Nostromo. Yeah, so the year is 2122. We're introduced to the Nostromo ship. Its name could mean either shipmate in, uh, in Italian or our man, like in Nostro Omo. Uh, in the one case, the ship is intelligent and uh, it, it could be a mate to the crew inside it. In the other, we could also say that, you know, we're beholding our man in the universe. The first things that you see are also really interesting, like in the alien ship. So you, you see nothing of the crew, you approach on the, this really huge space factory. It's, a, it's, it's supposed to be a, a spaceship that mines ore very far away outside of the solar system of Earth. Inside it, you see that there's a, an order being issued. There's no human being inside to uh, receive that order. And there's a really cute play that maybe a helmet there is receiving the order in any sense. The, the computer screen is reflected in the uh, visor of the helmet and you get some sense that maybe they're talking to other, one another or not. For me, it was never certain whether they're not, they are or not. But it's really funny that there's nobody there to get an order. And so the ship really is completely independent of its crew. And then you move to something even stranger to notice that the ship is asleep in pods and they, uh, they're completely under the protection of the ship, which stops when they have to wake up. Everything else goes into dangerous ways afterwards for them. Now that you look at it again, it becomes obvious that you start from intelligence and then move on to life awaking to life. At first it's just computers talking to themselves. It's an alert, it's something to which you have to react in an intelligent way to know what's going on, but there's no human agent there. The computer, it is in control of everything. It wakes up the human beings, it informs them about what's happening. They are as clueless as children, as innocent as babes waking up. So after they wake up, there's a lot of jokes, a lot of sitting around, eating, coming back to life, to all of the, the things that are pleasant to the people there. At the same time, they're quarreling about who gets how much money. There are officers, and there are engineers, and they're not the same in terms of authority or reward. 
This reminds us this is a commercial enterprise. These people are not adventurers exactly. We may not know why the aliens are traveling throughout the known universe, but we sure know why we would be doing it. There's valuable stuff out there. You risk your life, it takes a long time, but you can make a living out of getting all sorts of stuff that are scientifically useful. Now we can compare our enterprise with the enterprise of the aliens. You could say that we're all about the useful and they're all about the beautiful. The human ship, the Nostromo, it obeys the requirements of engineering and it reflects the habits of the crew. It's small, cramped, cluttered, worn out, somewhat dirty. It shows signs of use. It looks like a machine that can get the job done, but it's nothing to wonder at. This contrasts with the alien ship, which is vast, carefully designed, showing a unity of purpose independent of any use. That's probably not a mining operation run by underlings who know that they're underlings. The alien pilot is nothing short of majestic. The human crew is pretty drab and unenthusiastic. These people do not love their way of life. Space travel is certainly not an adventure for them or an opportunity to wonder at the greatness of the universe. They're just looking to get away from it all and return to Earth. The alien ship has only one pilot, captain, communications officer, engineer or repairman. Only on the human ship is there a possibility for second guessing, therefore. When the human crew is raised, they comply to the fact that their homebound course has been diverted and mother tells them a message has been picked up which they must investigate by contract. There are people who want more money, but they're silenced quickly. The more interesting dissent is Ripley's. They don't know if the message is human or intelligent, but the only one who is skeptical of mother's intelligence is Ripley who proceeds to decode the message herself. Everybody else obeys even if they do gripe because they trust the source of their orders, Mother and the Wayland Corporation. Ripley figures out it's a warning message, not a distress signal, and tries to stop the investigation but the science officer reasons against her fears. Her skepticism is not enough for more decisive action. The other artificial intelligence on the ship, Ash, has likely already received orders about the aliens and is prepared to betray the people on the Nostromo from this early stage. In one way, the Nostromo is heading towards catastrophe wrought from within, much like the alien ship, manned by one, seemed to have. So there's our way of doing business. As human beings, we have a specialization of labor that's required for expertise, and therefore the crew is made of people who have to trust each other. And then there's the alien way, where one man alone is in control. It turns out that nobody but the artificial intelligence is in control on the Nostrum. Everybody else is obedient. Even though they have the capacity to disagree or to deliberate, they fail to make use of it. They're just too habituated to their work. This brings up the relationship between the parts and the whole. The alien ship is manned by one man alone and therefore there is a unity of purpose there, although it's bought at the price of the inability to second-guess oneself. The human ship is made of many different people and therefore there's a question about what keeps them together and what coordinates their actions. It turns out that science has replaced what we would otherwise call politics. What the comparison of the alien ship and the human ship reveals about us is that in the case of this human crew, the ability to deliberate and decide in common has been replaced by obedience to a scientific intelligence, to a computer that's tied up to a faraway corporation. Even faced with the facts on the ground, literally, these people defer to an absent directing intelligence. 
Maybe the reason they can't take their adventure seriously, although they know they've never seen anything like this before and neither has anyone else, is that they're so used to their routine. Maybe they want to go back to that routine. For all their griping about it, they do obey it. This reveals something about the politics of Alien. To a large extent, action in the movie is so slow to come because of obedience. When it does come, it comes as rebellion against computers, against a scientific intelligence, and against the corporation behind it all. This suggests something. The political paranoia about the military-industrial complex, this is exactly what Alien suggests, that there's the weapons divisions of the Wayland Corporation that's interested in this monstrous alien. This corporation is to blame for all the mishaps and the horror because it is the correlative to the obedience and the dissatisfaction of the crew. These people feel like obeying orders is all they do on this ship and therefore they cannot act in any way themselves. They lead scripted lives and there is something arbitrary and tyrannic about the scripting. Captain Dallas, with all his cowboy name, says standard operating procedure is whatever the hell the corporation tells them to do. He hates the obedience imposed on him, but cannot break out of it. Maybe it's inevitable that so long as people live scripted lives, they will rebel at least in their minds by thinking about the overarching political design of those lives as a conspiracy against their freedom and against their welfare. This brings us to our last subject, the three main characters. These are Dallas, the captain, Ash, the science officer who turns out to be an android pit against the survival of the crew in the end, and Ripley, the third officer and last surviving crew member of the Nostromo. Dallas is the first to show regard for anything above the orders he received, which can no longer make sense with the change of events. He changes a great deal as the story unfolds. He's the first one who breaks orders by breaking quarantine protocol, and he won't even listen to another standard operating procedure suggested by the engineer Parker to freeze the infested second-in-command until a return to Earth. He cares for his second-in-command enough to try to take charge of the situation. When this desire to save Kane brings a destructive alien on board and threatens to destroy the integrity of the ship, he retreats in the shuttle alone, escaping the eyes of the crew if nothing else. Yes, you've hit upon this strange combination of qualities in the captain. On the one hand, he's obedient at first and in certain ways passive, if petulant about the orders he has to obey. On the other hand, he's a take charge kind of guy. At some point you do see that his name really fits him, Dallas. He's a cowboy at heart. He makes decisions and he expects to be obeyed. He has the qualities of leadership, getting people together, outlining a plan they can all share in, and therefore he can unite his crew behind him. At the same time, he wants to run away from it all. He retreats into his shadow and listens to classical music. So he's listening to a Mozart piece, Eine Kleine Nacht music, but he's quickly pulled back into the action before the second movement is done. So Dallas has four moments. He starts out passive, obeying orders, then he becomes active, even frantic, trying to save Kane, his second-in-command, and the ship, attacked by the alien's acid. Then he becomes passive again, listening to classical music, then he becomes active again. And here you see a test of his leadership qualities. His plan is great, and uh, he gets people to enact it. Further, he's the kind of man who wants to lead by example. He spearheads the hunt. 
Maybe he's a man of excesses. He's too alone both in his shuttle chamber listening to music and in the air ducts of the Nostromo hunting the alien. This gets him killed and leaves the crew alone without him. Captain Dallas shows something about leadership beyond his own abilities in planning and enacting a plan. He starts out passive because he lives by standard operating procedure. In the world of technical science and space mining corporations, there just isn't a lot of space for leadership. But when once events come to a crisis, when once the unthinkable does happen, only then do we see leadership qualities emerge and the opportunity for a man to make a mark. Next, the science officer, Ash. He's the opposite of Captain Dallas. The more there is a need for activity, the more he becomes passive. He is also the last restraint on the mind of Captain Dallas on behalf of the corporation. It is the fact that Dallas listens to him and obeys him implicitly because of his scientific authority that dooms the captain. Ash is the man with the plan. He's on the side of the alien from the beginning and finally learns to pity the humans he has betrayed. We're given all the same evidence as the characters about his betrayal until Ripley reads Ash's secret order from the corporation and Ash turns murderous, we have no strong evidence to suspect either that he's an android or that he means to side with the alien. But at every step from the beginning he's made choices to help the alien survive. He holds Ripley back from warning the ground expedition once she's decoded the alien signal. He opens the door for the infested crew and he conceals as much scientific information as possible about the alien. His suggestion to use fire against the alien could be a further play on the crew's naivete, as revealed in his confession about the alien's maximum hostility. His final words show why he sides with the alien. It's man's constructed morality as his only substance which fails him in the struggle to survive. If that is the case, in his final moment Ash does give the remaining crew of the Nostromo everything they needed to know in the beginning. Yes, it's important to notice this. Ash is negative as a betrayer. He doesn't do anything to doom the crew, he only helps them doom themselves. He encourages their blithe ignorance. They're the ones obeying the order to stage a ground expedition. They're the ones who are trying to get back into the ship. He only allows them to do what they already wanted to do. It's also true that at the end there's a kind of humanity to Ash. He spills his guts, so to speak, and he malfunctions in trying to become murderous. Maybe he couldn't have functioned as a trusted science officer in the crew had he been totally detached from the humanity of his crewmates. Finally, Ash's remarks about the alien, that he is admirable in its purity, that as an organism it's perfect, suggest what Ash thinks life really is. From the scientific point of view he embodies, Life is all about doing every monstrous thing required to keep living. That is what it means to be realistic, to have no piety, no humanity, to act free of any moral illusions. This is how he shows how treacherous science can be. He is all about curiosity, he's trying to learn the truth about this alien, but trying to learn that might create indifference to life, to the lives of his crewmates. He talks to the captain, Dallas, about the alien-infested second officer at one point. The captain asks, is it serious? The android answers, it is interesting. There's practice and theory for you. 
In a certain way, life and mind are also separated among the crew of the Nostrum. Ash's only significant action is to try to kill Ripley. He fails, and thus out comes the truth, the gruesome truth that the Wayland Corporation is trying to make sacrifices of its crew members in order to take possession of the alien monster. From this moment on, the position of the crew is desperate. Ash leaves behind him three naysayers. Ripley herself, we'll talk about her in a second, the navigation officer, who at this point is a scared woman on the verge of paralyzing panic, and the engineer Parker, who had proposed freezing the infested crew member in order to protect themselves from whatever might happen. These were the members who had no desire to get themselves into this predicament. As a naysayer herself, Ripley is their natural leader. Just like Dallas was named so that we get a sense of how much of a cowboy he is, despite the early evidence, Ripley was named for the famous Believe It or Not show. In her own case, Ripley chooses not to believe as much as she can. She is the skeptic, the naysayer on board the Nostromo. As third officer, Ripley is not only not in command, but she is not acting within the chain of command. She tries to stop people from obeying their orders. This is a dubious title to leadership, but on the other hand, as events turn catastrophic, what else is there to do? Ripley isn't in command until the end and never seems like the protagonist at all until things have escalated beyond any hope of control. When she does take over, doesn't she really show that Ash is right about human morality being inadequate to deal with the alien? The plan of the crew to deal with the alien changes from containing it, which gets Brett killed, to destroying it, which gets Dallas killed. And finally, when Ash states they have no chance against it because they are human, the remaining three crew members led by Ripley decide on two things, not one. Set the ship to self-destruct with the alien in it, and escape on the shuttle hoping they will be rescued. But blowing up the ship serves the people on Earth more than the people on the Nostromo. They could simply equip the shuttle with cryotubes more prudently and together, and then abandon the ship. The timer on the exploding Nostromo precipitates the execution of their plan enormously and divides the three again. This leads to the death of the last of Ripley's crew under her command. Ripley isn't leadership material indeed. She's a kind of expert as a warrant officer. She seems to be in engineering and communications. She's curious. She wants to know whether the signal they intercept is human. She wants to decode it for herself but she distinguishes herself negatively. She doesn't want to go on expedition. She wants to warn and stop the expedition once it does get underway. She doesn't accept the orders or the intel. Instead, she exercises her own curiosity. She doesn't want to let the alien in or her crewmates. She only joins the crew when once Dallas makes them into a crew, that is to say, by his own leadership, unites them around the plan. Then, she does her part in the plan, and she's partly responsible for the death of a crewmate, and for nothing good. After the plan fails, after Ash turns murderous and the situation becomes desperate, she returns to her native instinct, to run away. Ripley has two great qualities to recommend her, although they don't show up up until near the end. First, she has grit. She not only deals with the alien in the end, without panic, Without precipitated action, she sings to herself softly, ironically, thank your lucky stars. That shows composure, self-command leading to action in a way she had not had before. 
Her other quality is moral. Obeying some kind of unspoken instinct, she risks her life to save the cat, Jones, the only non-human member of the Nostromo. This must be understood as an answer to the threat of the alien monster and to the statement of the science officer, the murderous robot Ash. She wants to rescue some kind of life. She wants to show that life is not just about obeying a monstrous necessity and doing monstrous things. She may not be able to save anybody but the cat, but that does show her disposition, her willingness to risk her own life, her humanity. That is her saving grace. Implausible as it seems, this is the role that made Sigourney Weaver a household name. This is how she started her only franchise as Warrant Officer Ripley in the service of the Wayland Corporation. We'll do another podcast about Alien, trying to get into the philosophical issues, trying to do justice to Ridley Scott's intention as a director. Alien was a great success in 1979, the second highest grossing movie internationally that year, and we hope to have given you a sense of the complexities of the story, the sorts of things that in the thrill of events one might miss, but which one might ponder on reviewing. Thanks everybody for listening, we'll hear one another soon. Thanks for listening everyone, look forward to our new podcast next week, you'll hear from us then. We're out.